Good evening. You know, in the entire history of the Kansas University basketball program, there's only been one coach who's had a losing record. Any idea who that might be? David can't answer because he's already cheated and looked it up. The only coach in the storied history of Kansas University basketball to have a losing record is James Naismith. Now, most people don't know that James Naismith was the head basketball coach at the University of Kansas. Most people know James Naismith for another reason. May know what James Naismith did? He invented basketball. Exactly. In fact, the court at Kansas University is named after James Naismith. Isn't that interesting that the inventor of basketball is the only coach in the storied history of Kansas basketball to have a losing record? This series that we've been doing on Sunday nights has been focusing on how we are not defined by a moment. And we have looked at the individuals listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. We've looked at Moses so far, and, and uh, you know, we looked at, uh, we're going to look at Abraham, we're going to look at uh, you know, Jacob and Samson and some others in this series. Tonight, we're going to audit Noah. And what we see with all these individuals that we're going to talk about is that we could go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we could flip the script. Instead of highlighting their faith, we could highlight their flaws. But the Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Hebrews didn't do that. He could have, but he didn't. He focused only on their strengths, on their faith, because that's all that really mattered in the end. A faith that overcame those flaws and made them useful, even though they were flawed. Now, as we said, the purpose of this series is to, is to reiterate the truth that it's not how far you fall, it's how high you bounce. Failure is your forecast. However, it doesn't have to be fatal. It's all about failing forward, and I think that's what the Hall of Faith teaches us. So let's look at Noah, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. If you've ever watched the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony, they always get somebody to do a speech before to introduce the person being inducted. And so the person being inducted will get a family member or a former teammate to stand up there and say some nice things about the person being inducted. They are sort of the preamble to the induction speech. And so they say some things about their character, about you know what made them a great teammate perhaps, or a great father along those lines. They also, a lot of times, will tell some less than stellar stories or off-color tales about some things that the inductee did. And like a funeral, they somehow spin those to where they're good things or they're funny things. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think that everything needs to be celebrated, especially some things that aren't worth celebrating. You know, there are forgettable moments that uh, should never be repeated. But it is true that we are the sum total of our choices. And that's what I really like about Scripture, that it doesn't attempt to gloss over the failures. It exposes them, not in an effort to celebrate them, but to show that these less than stellar moments do not define a person of faith. And so if I am introducing Noah, if I am giving the speech to introduce Noah for induction into the Faith Hall of Fame, here's what I'm going to focus on. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and following. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah was righteous and blameless, meaning that he stuck out in a culture that was completely and totally wicked, like his great-grandfather Enoch, Noah walked with God. And in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 6, it states, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. In a world that followed sin and wickedness, Noah followed God, and it made all the difference. What if Noah did, but just didn't do exactly the way God had commanded? What if Noah loved God, but didn't gather the wood. I think we could rightly assume that he would be among those bodies that were floating on the water after the flood, but he didn't. He didn't do those things. Instead, he chose to follow God, to walk with God, and to obey God, and that made all the difference. You know, I I don't think Satan has a bit of a problem with you being here tonight. I don't think he cares one iota that you are here tonight or at any other worship service. I don't think it bothers him one bit that you pray, that you study your Bible, that you even say that you love God, just as long as you don't do anything else about it. As long as it doesn't carry out from here and it changed the way that you live, I don't think God cares. I mean, excuse me, I don't think Satan cares one iota. Go ahead and believe in God. Satan believes in God. Go ahead and believe in God. Just don't do anything about it. The ark was a piece of wood that provided salvation. And it's foreshadowing to another piece of wood that would provide salvation. And there are many people in this world that identify as Christian, perhaps even some sitting here tonight, that love God, that believe in God. They put on Christ in baptism, but they hadn't really done anything about it other than that. Are you a Noah? I've said it before. We often read about these characters in Scripture with admiration when we should be reading with application. Are you a Noah? Do you want to be a Noah? Are you striving to walk with God? What are you doing for the Lord? It's not about how much Bible you know. It's not about being able to recite chapters of the Bible, memorizing scripture. What are you doing for God? Does that knowledge translate into action? Because as you've heard me say over and over again, it's not what you know. It's what you do with what you know. You believe in God? Great. I said, the devil even believes in God. What, the, what should set the two of you apart, what should define you versus the devil, is that you actually do the will of God. That makes all the difference. You know, one of the things that often gets overlooked about Noah is the fact that he was a preacher. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 and 5, it reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a herald of righteousness, which means that he was a preacher. And by our standards, probably the most unsuccessful preacher that ever lived. Maybe the worst preacher that ever lived, at least in terms of conversions, right? He was very unsuccessful. You think about it, he spent a hundred years preaching and converted nobody, which is actually not really true. He got his family on the boat, didn't he? And I think that's the most important thing. At least he got his family on the boat. Where does the Great Commission start? Well, hopefully it starts in our homes. 
Noah may have failed miserably in terms of converting others, but he took care of his primary responsibility. He would have been hard-pressed probably to find a preaching job in this day and age. We're so numbers-focused. He might not have been able to get a job, but we, you know, we want those guys who can grow churches, even though we don't actually grow churches to begin with. Noah wouldn't have been a good hire today, but he followed the Lord faithfully. He did the Lord's work. He got his family on the boat, and in the end, that's all that truly mattered. I often have propped Noah up as an example for my ministry and when I have the opportunity to talk to preachers. Uh, a lot of times I will use Noah's example of how he got his family on the boat. And, and I talk about Noah because I have so many friends that I've talked to through the years whose dad was a preacher. And they say, you know, my dad was a wonderful man. He was a great husband. He was a good father, but he was never home. He was constantly doing Bible studies, he was constantly doing work of the church, and he was never home. He never really invested in us as much as he could have. Well, what's the most important thing? It's to get your family on the boat. One thing I've learned in ministry is that there's always church work to do. There's always stuff to do, but at some point you have to draw that line in the sand and say, you know, I've got to be available for my family. These are the boundaries. Your church family will never be as important or more important than the family that God has given you to raise. We talked about this in our series last year on family. You watch the show Deadliest Catch? You know, this is the, 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 the show about uh, these crab boat guys that go out on the Bering Sea and they die. You've seen that? I mean, it's like dangerous, it's treacherous, and they, they go out there and there's, there's torrents of water pummeling them as they're picking up these crab pots, and the water is causing the boat to shift back and forth and bob up and down. And you know what they do? Through all of it, they just keep working. Through all of it. I mean, the boat looks like it's about to capsize and they're still working. They slide across the deck. They get hit with water. They look like they're going to go overboard at any minute. And what do they do? They just keep working. They keep picking up those pots and they keep emptying that crab. No matter how treacherous the conditions, they just keep doing their job. And I think to myself when I see that, that's it. That's, that's us with our family. That's how the Christian home should be. The waves are treacherous. The storm is raging. There's torrents of water that are pummeling us. And here we are, a little family in our own little boat, navigating these waters, trying to stay afloat. Of course, that's not all the family is supposed to be about. We're picking up people along the way, hopefully. We're seeking to rescue those who have gone overboard. And through it all, we just keep working. We keep the course we keep rescuing those that are reaching out for a lifeline. No matter how treacherous the conditions, we just keep doing our job. Because the goal is not just to get our family on the boat. It's to take as many with us as possible. You know, the people in Noah's day didn't want to hear it. He was an unsuccessful preacher only because the people didn't want to hear the message. And he didn't force them, couldn't force them. And that may be the case with us. We may not be able to get as many on the boat as we would like. We can't force folks. But we also can't stay locked down in the hull of the ship and do nothing. Can you imagine being Noah and looking out from the deck of the ark and knowing that among those lifeless bodies that are floating around in the water, that some of them are his children? I mean, as difficult as that scene must have been, I'm sure that Noah took great solace in the fact that at least his family was on the boat that at least he was able to get to them. The world will always be the world. Noah couldn't change that. 
We may not be able to change it. This world is full of turmoil. But what we can do and what we should do is navigate the raging sea. And like those crab boats on deadliest catch, we take on water. We may risk life and limb, but we stay the course. We keep doing our job and we keep sailing in the proper direction as we get to the proper destination. You ever thought about what Noah gained? You ever thought about his reward? I mean, what did he gain out of all of this? I bring up this question because it kind of highlights an American Christian concept. You know, we we tend to feel entitled. We tend to expect blessings. You know, we feel like sometimes God owes us something, that there's some payoff in some way. Because God, you know, I'm here every time the doors are open. You know, I I give, uh, I help people when I can. You know, and yet I see sinners that are more blessed than I am. What did Noah gain? What was his reward? Mocking and ridicule as he labored to build this gigantic vessel. He was criticized. Once the flood hit, he lost everything. You get the feeling that Noah was wealthy. I can't prove that he was, but I don't know of too many people who could spend a hundred years who could afford to do that, gathering materials and constructing a massive vessel like the one that Noah built. Noah lost everything except, of course, his family. What was his reward? I'll tell you what his reward was. It was deliverance. For Noah, that was enough. It should be enough for us. Sadly, all too often, it's it's not necessarily for some Christians. They bemoan, bemoan the fact that they have served God for a number of years. They've been faithful, yet they still suffer. I'm here at church when I could be doing other things. Aren't you proud of me, God? I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't run around with women that do. Surely you're going to bless me, God. Whenever we start to feel entitled spiritually, I think it's important to remember that what we actually deserve is hell. That's what we actually deserve. Each and every one of us, including me, have done enough just in this last week to deserve eternal separation from God. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have found favor in God's eyes. What does the second piece of wood mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Because in the end, that's all that matters. Are you just happy with deliverance? Are you just happy by being on the boat? If you have nothing else but deliverance, you should be among the happiest people on the planet, right? So if I'm introducing Noah into the Faith Hall of Fame, that's what I'm focusing on, the fact that he got his family on the boat, that he was a man of faith, when being a man of faith was extremely difficult, and his family were the biggest beneficiaries. And we see the influence of Noah on his family at one of the low points in Noah's life. Because, as we've said, it's the hall of flaw, and the people that we've been mentioning and looking at so far, they had some serious flaws, and Noah had a moment, at least one that we know of, that he messed up. We find it in Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 20. It reads like this. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. 
Now, if this was one of those introductory speeches for induction in the, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, they might tell this story with a comedic tone. You know, it, it might be one of those stories that's less than stellar, but they try to put a spin on to make everybody laugh. I mean, it sounds like a scene from a college dormitory, doesn't it? I mean, if, if this happened in college, you would, you would expect the, the, the friends to go and, you know, write something on his forehead or maybe, you know, put shaving cream in his hand, tickle his nose, you know, that kind of thing. But this was serious. Noah is passed out drunk, and two of his sons react in a way that seems to be indicative of their upbringing. Shem and Japheth take a garment and they cover their father's nakedness. Not only that, they walk in backwards so that they don't view their father in such a state. And the rest of the account in Genesis 9 reads like this. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, I don't want to get into all the theories as to why Ham received rebuke and why he was you know, so um, harshly treated in this situation. Um, that gets rather involved. I don't want to get into that, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the story. Some say that he went and told his brothers, and when he did, he said too much. Others think that he mocked and ridiculed his father to his brothers. Some even suggest that seeing here, seeing the nakedness of another, means to have intercourse with a person. I, I don't know, and I don't want to get into all of that, but that's some of the reasoning some scholars give as to why Ham got, uh, received a curse. But here's the deal. In Noah's failure, his son succeeds. And it had to be difficult to face his sons the next morning. Imagine how that conversation must have went. Boys, I'm sorry. I messed up. I'm proud of you. Please forgive me. I've been there and done what Noah did, but I've, I've messed up in front of my kids. Some of my stake, mistakes have happened right in front of, of my kids. My son's back there doing PowerPoint, and he's probably saying Amen. And I've had to go to them and say, guys, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I messed up. I was a little harsh. Or I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I should do better. Don't be like me, right? There have been times when I've watched my kids make the exact same mistakes that I've made. That stings. But there's also been times when I've seen my children rise above my character. And I think, yeah, that's it. I'm so proud of them in those moments. You know, when we build an ark on faith, it can have lasting ramifications. And that's, that's what we want for our children, isn't it? That they take the faith that has been handed down to them and grow it. When my kids were small, sometimes they'd say, Daddy, I want to be like you when I grow up. And that just melts your heart. But truthfully, you want them to be like Jesus, right? Don't be like me. Be like Jesus. That's a much loftier goal. As we close, I want us to look at Genesis six seventeen. Genesis 6 and 17 reads, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is the gruesome reality of this story that we do not always see reflected in 
sermons and in Bible classes. I mean, how many nurseries do you walk into in church buildings where they have, you know, the ark painted on the wall and it's a mural with all these happy animals and the giraffes sticking their head out the top and, and there's a rainbow and, and everything's peaceful and everyone's happy. But you know what the scene was here? The scene would be an ark floating on the water that is filled with lifeless bodies the stench of death and decay in the air. I mean, paint that on a nursery wall, right? Imagine being Noah. Imagine looking out and seeing all of those lifeless bodies. It's not a pretty picture. Not a happy picture. It's a picture of the wrath of God punishing a sinful world. Notice Genesis chapter 7 now, verses 11 to 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. You know, some of us would wish for that right now, wouldn't we? You ever wonder why God decided to include the year, the month, and the day? Why do you think that is? What do you think of when you hear 9-11? What comes to mind when you hear the date December the 7th, 1941, or June 6th, 1944? Some of you remember what you were doing on 9-11. Some of you might even remember December the 7th, 1941. God wanted the people to remember this date, the 17th day of the second month of the 600 year would be a day that would live in infamy. It's a day that would not soon be forgotten because it was a day that literally changed the world. You want to be a Noah? Then work at changing your own little part of the world. Start with your family. Start with getting them on the boat. I want to close with these words from Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 36. Jesus has shifted gears from the abomination that causes desolation. And now he's talking about the end times. He says, About that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Did you catch that? For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Your ark is Jesus Christ. That is your deliverance. He is the ark of our salvation. And if you want to go to heaven, you got to be on the ark. That goes without saying, doesn't it? It's just that simple. As your preacher, as your friend, I'm pleading with you that if you are not on the boat, then get on. Hop aboard. We talked about it this morning. If you are not a child of God and you are sitting here this evening, that's grace. God has given you one more opportunity to respond. And if you are on the boat then get to work. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be done. It's a great rescue mission going on. Don't miss it. 
There's a lot of great things happening here at Oldham Lane, and we need everybody working. We need everybody on this boat, but may I remind you, this boat isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship, and it takes all of us. Because again, the devil's not concerned that you're here, as long as you don't do anything. Dave's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?